ladies, gentlemen, children of ages 15 and up and 13 and below, but none of those 14-year-olds. Welcome to their FUDS on Film podcast. I am Scott. I'm joined today by Greg. Maybe a kind of guy who shouldn't know a man in the back. Andrew. Yeah, um... Have you just caught up with Capone or something, Greg? <laughs> oh, no. No. Last man standing, thank you, Drew. So, it's... <laughs> yes, as you probably noticed, our schedules are out of whack, but then again, so are the entire world's schedule out of whack at the minute. So today, instead of our normal themed episode, we're just talking about a bunch of films that we've seen in the last month, two months, whatever, whatever time is... So that's really all the setup there is to it. So I suppose we'll just crash straight into the first film, which is unfortunately the Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. <laughs> unfortunately, Scott, am I to guess? <laughs> am I to guess already what your opinion of this is? Aye, Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Lars Eric Song, Will Ferrell, has dreamt of representing Iceland in the Eurovision Song Contest since seeing ABBA win with Waterloo in 1974 when he was just a young boy. To the eternal shame of his father Eric, Pierce Brosnan, Lars has never relinquished that dream, even into middle age, though he is aided in perpetuity by childhood friend and musical collaborator Sigrid, Rachel McAdams, with whom he performs as the titular Fire Saga. Following a freak explosion at a Eurovision yacht party in which all seemingly viable national representatives are killed, Fire Saga emerges as the only candidates able to take on the mantle. If that sounds somewhat contrived, then it is, as a somewhat convoluted plot by the scheming Victor Carlison, Michael Persbrandt, whose machinations and motivations I genuinely cannot remember just a scant fortnight after watching this film. Perhaps it's fitting that such an embarrassing spectacle of international shame as the Eurovision Song Contest has been treated to such an embarrassing spectacle of international shame as is perpetrated here by Netflix and Will Ferrell, though I doubt I'd be alone in suggesting that the competition's rich history of unfettered camp and unintentional cringe really ought to provide rich pickings for a multitude of comedic insights. Instead, what we get is self-confessed Eurovision fan feral self-indulgent shenanigans for two hours and three minutes, which boils down to reacting with shock and or confusion to a multitude of zany events, none of which do much to endear us to our central characters or their dream-taken flight. Frustratingly, there are parts around the edges that occasionally threaten to perhaps hint at the subtle notion that they know a guy who knows a guy who once said something funny. Dan Stevens once or twice borders on amusing as Alexander Lemtov, the Russian contestant whose entire scripted reason for being seems to be to shame the homophobia of the Moscow establishment, and Pierce Brosnan, whose involvement clearly came about as an opportunity to make bank for taking a two-week vacation in Iceland, who provides the only genuine laugh I encountered purely through his deployment of what he presumably perceives to be a suitable regional accent. I think maybe he got the hemisphere right, but I still couldn't guess latitude or longitude. Uh, anywho, there's not a lot to enjoy here, and I don't intend on wasting much <laughs> much of either your time or mine talking about it. It says something that Ferrell, who co-writes and is apparently such a huge fan of the contest, can't even get the hosting or the scoring mechanics right, and that the script lacks anything approaching the level of affection for its subject matter that you might expect. For a topic affording such a rich vein of inspiration, Eurovision turns out to be an incredibly uninspired and anodyne experience, an accusation which, despite my loathing of the actual event itself, one could never level in its direction. Did I mention Fire Saga win after all is apparently lost? Well, now you definitely don't need to watch it, and you owe me one. Yeah, I have um, I've seen this film several times before. It was best when it was Blades of Glory, which was good, <laughs> but I've seen it a number of times since. You're familiar with it yourself, I'm sure. It's where Will Ferrell shouts mm-hmm. <laughs> in a silly accent while being slightly confused. Mm-hmm. You know? And it was also considerably, considerably better when it was the Father Ted episode of Song for Europe, which is largely the plot of this, <laughs> at least the reason for the villain. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, it's basically like Iceland can't afford it, but Father Ted's version was much, much funnier, because, well, it was <laughs> Father Ted and not this. <laughs> that said, and while I have no interest in the Eurovision Song Contest at all, having watched a bit of it twice, maybe, I didn't hate this, which honestly surprises me. I just, I don't know, it's just pointless. <laughs> it's it's trying so hard to be funny like oh the whole yeah yeah ding dong thing and it's just it's awkward and cringeworthy for the most part but honestly I didn't hate it and I suspected I, suspect I would it's not Holmes and Watson and for that I am grateful 
but it's, I think I was maybe it's more distracted by the fact that it was meant to be set in Edinburgh and like because I know Edinburgh quite well I'm watching how they've got the geography of Edinburgh completely wrong including the fact that the main stadium is mm. in Glasgow but <laughs> That's like minor local interest, though. It's just not going to mean anything to most other people. Honestly, it's not as bad as it could have been. And I didn't hate my time with it. I even laughed at a couple of points. But it's pretty forgettable. Yeah, I think I watched maybe 20 minutes of it in various captures when I was watching it. And I remember nothing of it. And I certainly don't remember laughing at any of those 20 minutes. So, <laughs> uh, yes, I it did not make me want to go and seek out the whole experience. So, yeah. no. And it just it wasn't bad enough for me to like really dislike or anything and I just I kinda I watched it like okay I'm I am looking at this I can see it. I don't hate it so I can't summon the energy to switch it off. It's not that bad. <laughs> it it occupied space for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yes. Yes. And on that note again, yeah. I mean please come on. How many times are we gonna have to say this? Two hours for this? Really? <laughs> Yes, I'm sure people are sick of hearing us talking about running times, but it's such a valid complaint because this film does not merit two hours. Very few comedies do. And just even taken away from the fact that you don't find this a comedy, and for the most part, mm. I don't either. But it's like it's there's not two hours worth of material in here. No, why? It's just it's so self indulgent, and it just seems to be such a trend nowadays. And I don't understand where it's coming from. It's as if the people I'll, involved think it's some sort of value proposition, which I can assure you, in this case, it certainly is not. This might be a decent movie if it were eighty minutes long. Yeah, I have the feeling that just in Hollywood in general, that too much power has shifted away from editors to directors, mm. and I don't know how you get away from that because. You know, directors or what the names of people are attracted to they carry so much more clout but I think a lot of directors need to put their ego aside and just leave things in the hands of a competent editor yes I don't disagree I think there's also a lot of sort of self-congratulatory backslapping in these comedic circles amongst the sort of in crowd of uh, directors working with these particular actors Um, and I think there are a lot of egos on the acting side who probably you know Maybe some directors aren't comfortable or just don't see the necessity to tell people to shut up um, and rein it in a bit um, and exercise some sort of restraint. But uh, having said that, this isn't the sort of film where I get the impression Will Ferrell has gone off on a lot of sort of zany ad-libs that he's just insisted get kept in. For the most part, you know, it's just quite, it's really just quite uneventful and poorly scripted, I think, is is, is (laughs) biggest sin. It doesn't quite smack of say a Jim Carrey vehicle or anything like that where you just know that yeah. um, a director's not been able to control him Yeah, yeah. but anyway there we go I feel like we've probably spent enough time talking about this already more than likely yes. um, next up Greyhound okay the global pandemic has messed up cinema and I really do miss cinemas but it's certainly been a boon for the streaming services, and we now have our first Apple TV Plus title on Fuds and Film, with the Cupertino giant having paid a hefty $70 million for distribution rights to Sony's Greyhound. Based on a novel by C.S. Forrester, writer of the popular Horatio Hornblower novels, Greyhound is a fiction, but based on enough facts to have a ring of veracity to proceedings. Said proceedings involve the transit of a convoy of mostly US supply ships across the North Atlantic to a needy United Kingdom in the winter of 1942. For a five-day period, the convoy must cross an area known as the Black Pit, a gap beyond the reach of US air cover in the the west or RAF air cover in the east while being hunted by German U-boats. The convoy's protection comes in the form of a British destroyer, a Polish destroyer, a Canadian corvette and the USS Keeling, the greyhound of the title, commanded by Tom Hanks's commander Ernest Krauss, which between them must detect, seek and destroy any German submarines that threaten the other 30-odd ships. And that's it, in a nutshell. Despite involving surface vessels on one side, Greyhound very much has the feel of a submarine film, with the tension, fear and uncertainty typical of that genre though understandably and necessarily without the usual claustrophobia. Its 90-minute running time is compact, economical and reasonably exciting, with some, to repeat the word, tense and well-staged action sequences. If you've played any military video games, you are likely familiar with that little hit of satisfaction-derived dopamine that accompanies sinking a ship or scoring a hit on a target from a gunship. 
a few scenes in Greyhound, notably one of the nighttime U-boat assaults, manages to achieve precisely the opposite effect as German submarines, despite Krause's best efforts, blow up some members of the convoy, leaving a sinking feeling in the stomach. Where the film is less successful is in its characterisation, because it has none. Tom Hanks is reasonably anonymous in the lead role, his strongest contribution being a sort of calm assuredness, but neither he nor anyone else is given anything more to work with. There's some pleasure to be had in seeing the crew perform competently and intelligently, something that contributes to the satisfaction of watching the Keeling and its sister ships fend off the U-boat threat, but the sailors here are very much subservient to the action, meaning it's, well, largely impossible to feel invested in the fate of any given character. One question remains to me though, and it's why the screenplay, written by Hanks, uses the conceit of the U-boat commanders breaking in on the Allied radio frequencies too, in the parlance of our times, them right up. Something that lacks historical veracity, and indeed reads that way in the film. The extras on Apple TV Plus show some of the efforts the production went to to ensure a ring of truthiness, including restoring the World War II era guns aboard the USS Kidd so that the firing rate and movement would be accurate, with only muzzle flashes and smoke added in post-production. Strange then to undermine that work with something that is, in fact, treated as no biggie anyway in the film. It's not the classic of its genre, but Greyhound is a pretty solid Sunday afternoon movie that doesn't outstay its welcome. And if you have access to Apple TV+, Plus, you could do worse than check it out. Did you watch this, Scott? I'm afraid I did not, no. no. Uh, I did I did watch it. I, I, um, uh, I feel this is a really big missed opportunity. I thought it was pretty bland. I think the the lack of interest in characteriz- characterization is genuinely surprising coming from the pen of an actor who himself has managed to... I mean, he's not my favourite actor, but I know he's, he's um, a lot of people's favourites and even I acknowledge his work in bringing character to roles which at times have been underwritten. Hanks is an actor who seems to understand the importance of character and nuance, and so I was really surprised at a script from him. I think his first Hollywood script, I'm correct in saying, lacked any real um, insight into anyone part of the crew, uh, you know, allied or or German. I also found... I don't know, I, I disagree with you, I suppose, Drew, on the, the set piece stuff that I just found it quite boring. It was just all kind of, it really was, when you allude to video games, certainly I agree with you in that part, it just did seem very sort of uninspired, sort of keep your finger on the trigger cannons blasting away until someone finally hits a U-boat and everyone cheers and goes, yay, that problem's gone away for now. Um, I felt really detached from the action in this for the most part. And it's genuinely a shame because I think there is enough historical documentation that could have been drawn on. Um, I know that based on real events, which is to say that, yes, in in the mid-40s, there was an awful lot of stuff happening in the North Atlantic with German U-boats chasing ships. That's about as far as historical involvement is concerned with this. It's not based on any act, one actual event. It's, I guess, just a hodgepodge, um, an amalgamation of any number of conflicts that took place in the North Atlantic. But there is a real sense for me that this could have been something quite special. I think there's a great deal of tension that could have been derived from the crew's lack of trust in Hanks's character. It's his first commission, and he is, obviously, it's his first experience of this, and he is incredibly nervous and unsure of how to deal with the situation. And it's hinted at that his crew at points perhaps are a little bit dubious about his performance, but it's never really played through to any sort of uh, dramatic impetus despite the fact that we keep getting told he's nervous and his crew don't trust him he seems to make all the right decisions uh with the exception of perhaps going a little bit overboard on his use of depth charges initially which which leaves him a little bit short at a crucial point in the film apart from that i don't see that he's made any terribly bad decisions uh and he is you know, hailed, he's hailed as a hero by the end of the film by the sort of the remaining the surviving 
the surviving crew of the, of the ships accompanying the Greyhound. He gets a lovely sort of emotional payoff at the end, but it doesn't feel particularly earned, I don't think. I also think that on top of that tension between Hanks and the crew that is never really built upon, um, there's a wonderful film to be made about these cunning German U-boats stalking these ships. The tension there could have been absolutely insane. And the sort of the cutting in and the radio chatter and the taunting and stuff is not only massively inaccurate, but it, it would have been the end of the U-boats because it would have it would have allowed the, the American ships to quite accurately pinpoint where they were. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't understand why that's in there. It's, well, it adds nothing, and especially because they do just like shrug off. It's like, oh, well, yeah. change the radio channel then. I'm not so bothered about the inaccuracy of that if it had been used to any sort of dramatic effect, because there is a terrifying scenario that would play out in the dark in the middle of the Atlantic between these boats and um, the the German uh, submarines hunting them. There is an absolutely nail-biting experience that I feel could have been wrought out of this script, but just a few sort of changes and commitments um, in areas where kind of scant regard is paid and I just think overall it's a hugely missed opportunity I think it is really solid again it's got the good grace to get his business over and done within 90 minutes um, but both both my wife and I uh, watched it felt a little bit disappointed and she's, she's a huge Hanks fan and she fed into what you'd said Drew that really it's quite an anonymous performance from, from Hanks yeah. it's a very by the numbers Hanks performance it very much anybody. yeah absolutely and it kind of feels like it's like okay we know that this character is very two dimensional what's the absolute most we could get out of it well tom hanks would be good in that role um, it really does it's it's not a it feels like hanks uh, painting hanks by numbers um as opposed to any sort of signature role on his part so i yeah i was kind of disappointed all round by this film i feel like just a few changes this could have been something really quite special i absolutely don't disagree with you in pretty much anything craig i think we're largely on board there with like the mm. characterization I, just, I enjoyed the action mm. i found the action entertaining mm. that was um so that was enough for me to to give a reasonable recommendation as well i enjoyed it but you're absolutely right there's absolutely a missed opportunity um because yeah this character's a nobody and there are hints that the crew are i don't i don't think they would mutiny no but that there would be more hesitation certainly in the hints that like they're not so sure about why he's turned in the opposite direction mm-hmm. and you see afterwards why but it's like a kind of a hesitation on his exo's face at one point or something and then yeah that was about it mm. Uh, if they'd played with that a bit more, it'd be more interesting. And the other thing in particular, there's the one bit where I was really, really disappointed was there was a scene where in the middle of a U-boat fight at night, a ship is blown up mm. and the choice is mm. go and try and save another ship or save the men that are right next to them. Yeah. That really needed to be explored more because that's a hell of a difficult decision to make. Yeah, Absolutely. And but because there are no characters, nobody can have a conversation in it, which is no. disappointing. Uh, so yeah, the, the, it's frustrating in that way because there there could be something quite quite special in there. Absolutely, mm. um, if you add the solid action with actual characterization, mm. and it's weird to me think about because what I thought about a few times to this film was Captain Phillips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like yet another thing where Tom Hanks is the captain of a boat, kind of out of his element, first combat. It's not directly comparable, of course, but and it's like night and day the difference between the Hanks performances and that. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well what what's really annoying is that the film alludes, uh, the film acknowledges the importance of character because there's a point at which um, Greyhound is itself attacked, and I think there are uh, three. Uh, fatalities, a number of casualties and three fatalities. And we find out who one of the fatalities is and it's really played uh, very mournfully um, and we are given the impression that we should feel really bad and understand why the captain feels terrible about that particular person having died. And had anything whatsoever been invested in that character uh, beyond a sort of a cursory couple of lines of dialogue between him and the captain early in the movie, then I might I might feel compelled to uh, I might feel compelled to agree. However, as it stands, that scene just plays out as though. Sorry, did I did I miss some really key stuff? I had to ask my wife who it was they were talking about. Yes, Craig, thank you because I watched that. I was like, you like, like, who who the heck is this guy who's Cleveland? Like who? Yeah. Who? What? It's like. Oh, it's the guy who was determined he would have a sandwich. Okay. Like, it took me ages to realise that that's who they were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, I didn't get it at all. Uh, my wife had to explain it to me. So, 
yeah, not clear at all. And then played played very mournfully, as though we should all feel gratefully impacted by this character's passing. When in, when in actuality, we didn't even know who he was. Yeah, really weird, really weird, and a big big missed opportunity, but not without merit. Not without merit, and not the worst film that we've spoken about so far, let alone in the episode. But uh, yeah, I would like to have seen it done with just a little bit more depth. Move on then to The Vast of Night, in which we will find ourselves back in a small town in 1950s New Mexico, where a young disc jockey, Heverett, played by Jake Horowitz, is keeping a few listeners happy, while the rest of the town's denizens are occupied watching the high school basketball derby. When his friend, the even younger Faye, played by Sarah McCormick, a switchboard operator, notices a weird garbled transmission hijacking the airwaves. She records it, plays it back to Everett, who then retransmits it, asking for submissions on what it could be. The chase for answers, mainly through two more or less monologues, will attempt to fill the 85 minutes until the credits roll. That's a little more disparaging than I mean it to be, but this is in a way, a lot, <laughs> this is in a lot of ways a slow burn of a golden age sci-fi homage that's a bit too heavy on the slow and not enough on the burn. Mm-hmm. It, it does, however, do such a great job of disguising itself that it might not be too much of an issue. Uh, for starters, there's some great character work from McCormick and Horowitz, backed up with writer-director Andrew Patterson's naturalistic and believable dialogue and relationship setups. The period details of the 50s Americana are endlessly distracting, alongside the reel-to-reel tape recorders and clunky switchboards. There's some impressive of technical shops on board too, with the long swooping tracking shots establishing the small town really well. In fact, the 80 odd minutes of narrative went by smoothly enough that it's maybe only writing about it that spoils it. Um, I should mention that it's ultimately framed as a Twilight Zone style TV show, broadly contemporaneous to the 50s setting, which is either the reason for or the excuse for a lot of things that you could criticise it for. So, when the answers to the questions raised turn out to be the umpteenth retelling of hoary old sci-fi tropes, that is of course the point of the exercise, but that does not stop it being a hoary old sci-fi trope. There's elements of this that ultimately felt like padding, albeit consummately produced padding, but by the time I think that the third long take swoopy following shot showed up in mm. lieu of a cut, I was kind of getting the feeling there was a bit of a struggle to reach the feature length running time going on here. <laughs> um, yeah. in, in truth, this might be better to be served uh, by a 50 minute TV format, but what's on the table before us is a very well crafted piece of niche appeal science fiction that will almost certainly light up the pleasure centres of some in a way that something like, I don't know, Midnight Special did a few years back. Uh, there's a lot in here that I'm quite positive on but even as someone who's more likely than not to like this sort of thing, it's something I appreciated rather than out and out liked. As such, it's tough to give it an enthusiastic thumbs up, particularly for a broader audience. Uh, what do you guys make of it? Uh, I was very disappointed by this mm. because it started off so promisingly. Mm. I've I really, really enjoyed that dialogue at the start. That yeah. was, it, it felt snappy and quite impressive performances because those are long takes. Yeah. Unless it's really clever editing, those felt like good long takes of the back and forth between the the woman from the, or the girl from the switchboard. What are they called switchboard. Yeah. I couldn't remember the sudden name. Um, telephone exchange is what I was trying to think of. But <laughs> yeah, and the radio guy. It's just though it's ninety minute film with thirty minutes of content. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely set up like you say, like the Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits or something, um, and it feels almost like it wants to be the first entry in an anthology series. Yeah. Yeah. Which might work um, with that framing of the the 1950s era TV at the start and stuff. And actually, I'd be quite on board with that if this was like a, a Netflix series, a television series, and there were 30 minutes each. And stories like this, and it's just like a modern, not even a modern take, it's like better production quality, but like of classic stuff like that. I'd be yeah. quite on board yeah. with that. But there's just not the content here. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's it's nearly all filler because sod all happens and there's just... Mm. I was saying, the real is only 30 minutes of material, which is frustrating. Although, admittedly, not quite as frustrating as the fact that they occasionally cut back to seeing stuff on the television, which was a really irritating conceit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's, I like the idea. I like the tone. It started off really well. I loved that dialogue that, that established the guards. It was very naturalistic. It felt good. And then, just like, oh... That was it then. Yes, that's your idea. Now, okay. you, now so, we've ran out of it. Yes, yes and there yeah. was so yeah. It, it's again, but like Graham, like, I wish there was there was more here. There's a real, there's a a crumb of something really good in there. Maybe more than a crumb. It's a nucleus of something that could be really interesting. It's just a ninety minute film. is not it. It's not got enough to sustain that mm-hmm. kind of running time, and that's not a long running time. I see your list of requested changes, Drew, and I raise you any kind of payoff whatsoever. Yes, um, that. That's it. It's like it sort of just ends like, oh, 
Yeah. Oh, sorry. What is well, what is okay. the purpose of my involvement in this little escapades? Um, I I went into this on recommendation, uh, really wanting to enjoy this, and came out thinking, well, that's ninety minutes of my life I'll never get back, which really ought to have been sixty minutes of my life I'd never get back. Because I was going to be more generous and say, I think there's an hour in here. But I like <laughs> your idea, Drew, that if this had been the first episode of a Netflix series. I think it might have been an interesting lead into something else, but given that nothing happens whatsoever, um, I find it difficult to to recommend at all. I don't even understand why the necessity, like you say, for the transitions. A lot of frustratingly, there are technical elements of this film that you've alluded to, Scott, that are quite impressive, like the switchboard scene, but the uninterrupted switchboard scene, which is like ten minutes or something of her having various conversations and operating the switchboards. Um, the young lady who's who's neither the actress nor the character's names can I remember. Uh, there is stuff like that which is quite good and, they, and I quite enjoy that opening scene although I do find the character of Everett quite annoying and that scene served more to just get my back up I, th- I thought that is a performance from someone who is thinks they're charismatic and who the script really wants you to believe is charismatic and has a bit of swagger about the way he walks for some reason but I really just it really I don't know what it was it just rubbed me up the wrong way and then there are absolutely extraneous technical elements to this film that and I hadn't really considered it, Scott, but I suppose there really is a good case to be made for the the fact that they are probably just there to pad things out beyond yeah. sort of the, what would technically qualify this as a short rather than a feature film. Yeah. I, I'm almost frustrated that they even had the ending that they did too, because... There was an ending? Yeah, <laughs> ish. Uh, but the kind of... What I kept thinking of, um, and perhaps... It, it was more than anything because it's set in a radio station. Mm. Maybe you can think of Pontypool. No, it's the same yes. thing. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And I was watching yep. this thinking, see if like, they just have this, like, you never find anything, it's all yep. just over the radio. Just all phone. Telephone stuff. That would be great. And also thinking, I really wish Stephen McHattie was in this because yep. he's got the best voice. <laughs> it would be so much better <laughs> exactly than Exactly the thought <laughs> I had about halfway through this film when I realised that it was not going to get any better as, I've seen this before and it was better and it was Pontypool. Even with like, there's a, a bit of action at the end of Pontypool, mm. but um, still, it's, had it been something like that, so I was more just frustrated. But there's a couple of films recently where it's a 30 minute sci fi TV episode stretched to 90 minutes. This and Vivarium, exactly, and yeah. they could both even be in the same program, yeah. in the same series. <laughs> yeah, uh, they just they don't have enough material to to sustain their running time, and it's. Rather than it making me angry, I think I really do like it. So I was like, that's a disappointment. You've taken the wrong medium for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't, the film kind of just peters out, and I have no idea in the end what it's saying. There's almost never anything more satisfying than a breakthrough, a low budget breakthrough film for someone and quite often it can you know quite often you you get that in the sci-fi genre because that genre affords people to be the opportunity to be inventive in certain ways that perhaps other genres might not so readily Um, and I was all set for that I was all set to be really excited by this director who's again whose name I cannot uh, recall Andrew Patterson Andrew Patterson there you go and there's a reason why I can't recall his name and it's because this has been built up to be that it's like oh this is a really you know it's flawed but it's a really exciting in first feature film from this person who will who will should probably uh, who we should probably watch you know I've I've seen people comparing it to uh, Shane Carruth um, and uh, Primer and whatnot I'm thinking to myself nope 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 Primer had a story yes um, and I just I really it's one of the few times where I've where I've sat and watched something like this and I've just been utterly confused as to what the goal of the whole thing was um, in the mind of the you know the writer-director and what it was they were hoping to achieve. Um, and, yeah, very very confused as to... I know it's not been universal praise entirely, but I'm very confused as to some of the high praise this has received. Oh, yeah, people are fawning over this and I, I yeah. don't see it at all. No, no, really baffled, really baffled. Um, and I'm always hoping for for someone to make that next great breakthrough film. I think that's that's one of the most satisfying things to see as as a viewer is to see who the next the next person coming through is. Um, but I just I don't know what the merits of this are. So there you go. 
Yeah, another swing and a miss, but uh, will we be get any better results from Palm Springs? Oh, I should like to hope we might. Uh, Palm Springs, for all the remakes and reimagining we seem to be disproportionately subjected to these days, it is perhaps surprising that relatively few high-profile movies have revisited the time loop concept of Groundhog Day. I would suggest that's because everyone seems to think Groundhog Day can't be improved on, but that didn't seem to matter for Robocop, so let's not pretend. <laughs> um, I've been fond of Andy Samberg's brand of buffoonery for some time, now, certainly since at least Hot Rod which I still find to be one of the most alarmingly underrated comedies of modern times and so the emergence of Palm Springs on Hulu recently following a record Sundance bidding war seems something to look forward to the movie centres on Niles, a 30-something guy whose carefree attitude at the wedding of a friend turns out to be founded in his existential incarceration in a time loop that sees him living the same day over and over in perpetuity. Carrying his experience through to each new predictable awakening, Niles has had time to reflect on a lot of things, and though it's never explicitly stated for how long he's been trapped, the inference is that it may well be decades. Initially, Niles' only looping companion is the shadowy, psychopathic figure of Roy, J.K. Simmons, who we are introduced to in full camel gear as he shoots hunting arrows at Niles from a compound bow, an act that precipitates the introduction of wedding guest Sarah, Kristen Milioti, to the loop. Initially reluctant to accept her new fate, Sarah grudgingly beds down into the idea that this state of affairs may actually afford some opportunities, and together she and Niles engage in various tomfooleries, occasionally interrupted by the murderous Roy. There is perhaps inevitably some romantic growth between the leads, though at a certain point, after falling out, they appear to part ways, with Sarah dedicating herself to finding a way out of their shared predicament. I've read various interpretations of Palm Springs as an allegory for the commitment necessary to maintain a marriage, though on the verge of my own 10-year anniversary, I would like to suggest that another valid means towards achieving this is to pair oneself with a partner who is infinitely more patient, understanding and emotionally complete. (laughs) In any event, I'm not sure I feel the need to burden Palm Springs with that degree of intellectual insight, as I found it to be the antithesis of Eurovision. It's a comedy which made me laugh frequently, has heart, and also the good grace to get its business over and done with inside of 90 minutes. I do recommend. Yes, um, I I enjoyed Palm Springs. I laughed quite a bit. Mm. I, I like Andy Samberg a lot, but um, I guess this is another film whose popularity baffles me. I and mean, maybe just mm. right now, this time, people just want something that's like kind of warm and you can laugh at. But yeah. I was surprised it, at the record bidding war thing. Yeah. Mm. It's so milk toast, though. <laughs> it really is so mm. so milk toast. It's it's got no edge to it at all. Mm. Um, and I, I'm, maybe that's good because I don't think Andy Samberg can do edge mm. much as I like him. I, he can't. He doesn't have a lot of range. But it's it hints at some kind of interesting darker stuff. Like he's saying that. At one point, Andy Samberg saying he can't um, remember his job. Yes. Like, he won't answer any questions about how long he's been there. Nobody, and she never even asks him. Sarah never even asks him how he got in there in the first place. Because mm. it's not clear. And, like, so there's, there's lots of hints there about something dark or troubled in his past. Or, and it's like, uh, oh, no, we never, never ever mention it. And then by the end, apparently all that stuff's forgotten anyway. Mm. So it's... It's kind of frustrating that because there could be something there. I mean, I enjoyed my time with it, but it's so forgettable. I yeah. never watch it again. Oh, I'm never going to. So, I'm never going to feel love. the need to go back and watch it. No. I mean, I mean, and it so very much is Groundhog Day, but considerably less good. Although on the upside, Kristen Milioti, she's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Isn't Andy McDowell? <laughs> <laughs> One thing I've never two, got on with in two um, points. Groundhog Day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's. It's just quite bland, which is disappointing. It's it's funny, and you know, it's it'll lift your mood a wee bit because it's quite funny and mm. it'll give you a laugh. But it's there's just nothing there. There's no substance, and I'm frustrated by that because it hints at it mm. and doesn't go anywhere. And but also, there isn't enough JK Simmons because well, nothing has never enough is. Never is yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. One of the few in this episode I did watch, and I don't really have anything particularly to add to it. So yes, I, I fully agree. It's quite a good comedy. I laughed quite a bit. I will never think of it again. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's entirely worth watching uh, and worth uh, plugging onto your streaming service of choice when it appears and whatever it does. Um, but uh, other than some ephemeral bit to pass ninety minutes in a very enjoyable way, which is no mean feat in and of itself. I don't particularly want to diminish that. Um, yes, solid B plus fair, absolutely recommended, um, but you, you will not be thinking about this next week, let alone next year. So, yeah, good, but um, yeah, not particularly exciting to talk about. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, can I just, just before we move on, um, just how well you can't really say it's rotten tomatoes; it's nonsense. But just when they're like coming up with their ideas for like a like an overarching idea of the film, the uh, rotten tomatoes is here. Critics consensus, strong performance, assured direction, and a refreshingly original concept. Hmm. What? Hmm. This is Groundhog Day. Yes. What? Yes, yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, and not even like a little bit of Groundhog Day. It's Groundhog Day. Yeah, it's just Groundhog Day. I mean, unless, uh, in, unless you know, not doing a suicide montage or anything, doesn't quite have the edge or edge in any way to, yeah. at all. Well, sometimes like critics are pass when they, you know, they, they've not gone back to the nineteen seventies or something where like very similar films have been around, and they said, "Oh, what a new original take on a film!" But come on, Groundhog Day. Yes. <laughs> well, it's a film whose entire concept has become part of the modern vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That people in everyday speech would say, "Oh, it feels like Groundhog Day." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I'm not accepting that. That's yeah. terrible. <laughs> you know, the other thing I, I wish I'd mentioned as well, Drew, when you were talking about the the darkness that the film did not address with Palm Strings was, um, quite how. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Quite how brutal Roy's treatment of Niles uh, <laughs> is at parts. Like we see him literally like torture murdering him essentially and stuff. That's that's pretty dark. And Niles, uh, yeah, that's dark stuff. And it's um, it's never really addressed. Actually, he addresses that wee bit in it. Like he realised what he was doing to him after he was had his legs pinned by the police car. But that's it. Very much just paying lip service to it. Like. That's you could have a real black comedy there, um, and it doesn't really. Yeah. So we'll move on to radioactive then. Maria Sklodowska, better known to most of the world as Marie Curie, was one of the greatest scientists that has ever lived. A pity then that she should be so ill served by such an uninspired, generic, paint by numbers biopic as Marjan Satrapi's Radioactive. Curie, played by Rosamund Pike. Though, um, as I say to say here, it's perhaps a blessing that we're spared some atrocious French accents. It strikes me as odd that the cast is almost entirely British and the accent's almost entirely English. I'm not sure there's actually a single French person in this, which is weird. <laughs> anyway, say Curie is an ambitious and prickly young scientist struggling to find support for her as it would transpire groundbreaking, world-changing experiments. Turfed out of the laboratory she was working in, she's offered space by Sam Riley's Pierre Curie, a fellow research scientist similarly not politically favoured by the university bigwigs. Together, they embark on the study of radioactivity and then the discovery of two new elements, radium and polonium. They also embark on a romance, giving Sklodowska the surname by which we know her best today. The film follows Curie's struggles to be recognised in her own right, while dealing with anti-Polish sentiment, chauvinism, lack of funding, illness and the struggles of motherhood. Like most of our challenges though, this last in particular is simply not sold convincingly by Satrapi or Jack Thorne's screenplay. Do you require feeding? She asks her daughters at one point. How cold. But also <laughs> but also how alone, it being one of the few points that addresses Curie's motherhood at all, and how typically unsubtle of the film. A few times throughout Radioactive, we are treated to flash forwards to see various things that were, to a greater or lesser degree, based on Curie's pioneering work, letting us know that radiation is both bad and good, though mostly bad. While I have no problem with Strappy adding something a little less conventional to the narrative structure, these attempts are curiously artless and heavy-handed, while in keeping with much of the rest of the film, treating the audience like they're a child with concussion. Radioactivity is bad, children. See the Japanese man watching the big bad in the sky. Ooh, radioactivity. <laughs> Quick flashes of a piece of archive footage, a la Spike Lee, might well have worked. Or, perhaps, as Pierre Curie warns of the dangers of his work as he accepts the Nobel Prize, cut to an American scientist sitting next to a Japanese scientist and trust that the audience will get it, which really isn't much of an ask. Like Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, Radioactive rather misses the point of its subject, telling us that they're special or important without ever really showing us why or how. 
the struggles and prejudices Curie had overcome due, in particular to her gender, are portrayed as minor inconveniences. And that would be fine if the film focused instead on her science, but it doesn't. A few trite phrases from Curie and her holding the odd steaming flask are about all we get, though we do get a good hour of how one of the world's greatest minds couldn't cope without her husband. Oh, and she's afraid of hospitals. This is important seemingly, so it's spelt out to us multiple times. It also seems to be so that's useful. <laughs> Rosamund Pike is watchable enough, but very far below her best. And, well, Radioactive's not a bad film, but given the importance and impact of its subject, it's quite an unsatisfying one. And that's without the dream sequences. Grrr, etc, etc. <laughs> Sounds like a right steaming flask to me. <laughs> I think neither of us have seen this then, Scott. Yeah, I've not seen this. Cool. Shall we move on to The Old Guard? If we must. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten this was a thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> curious <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, comic book adaptation, The Old Guard, sees a group of four mysteriously immortal eternal warriors thrown into disarray when an ex-CIA goon and a big pharma conglomerate team up to hunt them down and extract their secrets, all while they're trying to bring a new member of the Self-Resurrection Society up to speed. That's pretty much as disparaging as I mean it to be. Uh, for the purposes of science, I hooked this film up to the Morris Industries schlockometer and it returned a value of 200% schlock, previously thought theoretically impossible or at least medically inadvisable. Thankfully, I kind of love schlock, so it's more bearable than the other Netflix action misfires like Six Underground or Extraction. However, I'm not going to argue that it's anything other than nonsense on toast. <laughs> Our bunch of excellent immortals played by Charlize Theron, Matthias Schoenarts, Marwan Kinzari and Luca Marinelli are all underutilised but do what's asked of them well enough. I quite like the relationship between Kinzari and Marinelli which is refreshingly non-marvelly mm. and Kiki Lane as the newcomer does what's asked of her well enough in the sort of thankless exposition question asker role that's completely hobbling her. Uh, likewise the material's generic enough that it's not going to go on Chibatil Elijah for as a showreel but then again, he's rather overqualified for this role. The only fish out of water here is Harry Melling as the snivelling CEO type, with a performance that would probably be bettered by an actual fish out of water. <laughs> the action sequences are, I'll go as far as say, acceptable, maybe? At least, at least the ridiculous stuff here is supposed to be ridiculous, unlike the aforementioned Netflix clunkers, and the central conceit is interesting enough that I can imagine these characters doing something a bit more engaging in a sequel that's not lumbered with this amount of backstory and lore to clunkle exposition their way through. Any such sequel could do with having a bit more cash thrown at the production budget, though. I was surprised to see this pegged at $70 million and I can only assume that six-sevenths of that has gone into the actor's paychecks mm. as it resolutely does not appear to be reflected on the screen, unless those CGI limbs unbreaking themselves have really gone up in cost since Blade did it years ago. This is very much a thing you can watch if you want to. It's an undemanding <laughs> distraction in a time when we very much need it, but in normal circumstances, ignoring this would be a much better option. <laughs> Still, this might well be the only release this year that feels vaguely similar to the tent poles that would normally be cluttering up our multiplexes at this time of the year, so there's perhaps some small psychological comfort to take from this otherwise mediocre, yet somehow still Netflix's best action film attention candidate. Yeah, well, my Extraction <laughs> set a pretty low bar, Scott. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, comparing this favourably to Extraction, which I've seen a number of people do, is, uh, yeah, it's not much. Um, I could probably <laughs> compare my botched appendix operation a number of years ago favourably to extraction um, I don't I, again a lot has been made of this and I feel like this film is being granted a good deal of goodwill from people because and uh, and shamefully I cannot remember the director's name Gina Prince-Blythewood right okay so Gina Prince-Blythewood um, a, a lot of a big deal has been made about this because Charlize Theron is um, very much to her credit interested in uh, using her production chops and her leverage to further the cause of female directors in sort of what I suppose you could consider non-traditionally female uh, genres. A great deal of goodwill seems to be being extended to this film and I'm not entirely sure it's deserving of it. And it's disappointing because now is absolutely the time for uh, female directors uh, to be uh, getting their punches in with this kind of thing. And I would have loved for this film to have soared like an eagle. Um, however, 
I did not find it to do that. Um, very much like Greyhound, I found a lot of it perfunctory. I found there to be elements of character where I felt like I was being told to care about people just because, um, mm. without any demonstration of why I should. There's mm. a point at which there is a speech given in this film by one of the characters. And again, I can't remember the characters' names now, but the two characters who are in a partnership together. And one of them gives a grandstanding speech about how the other person to whom they're referring is someone who, after millennia of living together as immortals, still thrills him just by just by kissing him, which would be an an amazing speech in any other circumstance where it had been earned as as a piece of grandstanding. However, it just felt like the minute that line had been delivered, tumbleweed sort of rolled past for him because I'm not sure. I'm not sure it works in the context it's in, and I really want to see the movie where that speech is a punch the air moment. Yeah. Um, also, just sorry, Craig, just mm. if we go on, just in regard to that moment in particular too, it's then used like a moment later for a comedy beat that absolutely does not land. Yes, absolutely. Guards around them looking at each other, going, Ugh, "Look at these horrible gay people." Ugh, yeah, exactly. Basically. And it's like it's it just is so Ooh, what's discordant. Go- what's going on here? Oh, oh, sorry, you fumbled it. Yeah, it's um, it was. It just felt really out of place, and that's a scene I want to see in an action movie. I, that's a film I want to see in a traditional action movie because I'd love to see the response from certain people watching that who'd been lulled into a rollicking good action time at the cinema. However, the the action in inverted commas of this film is as anodyne as I found it to be in Extraction, and I am so past this John Wick nonsense of the highly choreographed, super quick gunfights where where our protagonists are so precise in their actions and and everything moves like a ballet. I'm, I'm it is. It is alien to me. I cannot have any emotional involvement in that kind of nonsense whatsoever. Nothing bores me more than that kind of an action scene, and I don't even get the thing with John Wick. I don't even get the thing with John Wick, let alone this sort of John Wick light, which this film is trying to be. The central conceit interests me. The execution does not. And I went into the old guard really looking forward to a rollicking two hours of... Nonsense. Uh, absolute, <laughs> absolute sort of graphic novel adaptation nonsense and hyper-violence. And again, I just, I came out of it thinking, oh, geez, come on. So, yes, really disappointed in this. Yeah. It was passably enjoyable. I, I didn't, like, hate it or anything, but I can't even remember most of the action scenes right now. It's just soulless. The action is soulless. The whole film is, I think maybe that's partly the budget too, because everything just felt like it was happening in clinical empty offices and stuff. Yeah, it's it felt corridor of the movie, isn't it? Yeah, it felt like, and 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 I know this seems like a funny, sorry, Drew. I know this seems like a stupid thing to say given the production values that are the hallmark of TV currently, but this feels like it could have been a TV production from maybe ten years ago. Yeah, so late nineties, even maybe. Yeah, just, yeah. Um, maybe that's you know, a wee bit of a disservice, but yeah, it's it doesn't feel. Um, of the now. No, it doesn't feel of, like a big budget movie. In terms of, yeah, um, contemporary production standards. And I just had like issues with the plot as well. It was like, especially the sort of, the great mystery at the centre. It's like, it, it's quite incredibly predictable. Mm-hmm. And basically it's like, well, I've seen The Matrix. It's basically that plot done less well with um, Joey Pants. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, sorry to spoil it for anyone, but, you know, the Matrix is better just watch that. It's just, I don't know, I can't, I didn't resent my time with it. I, it was passably entertaining, but it wasn't special. And I, mm. I hadn't even heard of this film until about three days ago or something when we were discussing films to do for this. Then at the same time, I saw a news story that said that Charlie's Thrun's looking at, like you're talking about a sequel for the surprising hit the old guard, mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. It's like, oh, no, okay. I think just everybody's just starved for content at the moment. Yeah, is Netflix released a list of their, you know, their top ten. I think it must be limited to their original releases, which this is one of them. And of those, there's only one that I thought was okay, which was platform, and the rest of them like this are just sort of absolutely mediocre. So, yeah. 
quite what Netflix is, how they're getting so many people to watch this sort of stuff, other than just immediately putting it front and centre of everyone's eyeballs when they log into Netflix, yeah. is beyond me. But Because uh, <laughs> wasn't it like Extraction and Triple Frontier on that list as well, a bird box? Six, yeah, Six Underground... Um, a few other odds and ends, like I think at least one the Irishman's the, in there. The Irishman's up there. But I think one of the Andy, Andy Sandberg uh, and Adam Sandler Sa- and, and Adam Sandler. Yeah, <laughs> one of his ones. Um, I appreciate it's difficult to, <laughs> to to g oneself up to even mention his name. Yeah, um, but yeah, they're just not great. Um, the platform, which I think will maybe swing round to because it was at least yeah. somewhat interesting and the only foreign language one there which is interesting enough um, and easily the best of the lot uh, but yeah Netflix's quality control for their own stuff is not great and um, maybe arguably it's getting a bit better and it is this no guard's not laughably bad but yeah for someone who's basically going to be a studio they've still got a much better hit rate with yeah. their uh, episodic content than their I'll, films yeah that's what I was going to say I didn't want you to pass over the episodic content because in terms of in terms of series uh, produced Netflix is punching uh, way up there um, mm. and certainly with the high profile ones their hit rate has been like I would I would suggest remarkable yeah. why they can't translate that over to movie content I don't know because when you look at the budgets they're throwing at some of these things um, it's quite remarkable and I know some of them are acquisitions uh, rather than original sort of Netflix productions and stuff but still if you look at stuff like Triple Frontier and w- what was it they spent on that again? Wasn't it something obscene, like $200 million or something? Sounds right. It, that yeah. sounds right, yeah. $180, $200 million or something like that. And then stuff like... A lot of money, anyway. Yeah, stuff like this. Of money at Bright, which was bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what was the Cloverfield paradox as well? <laughs> Precisely, what was it? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, it's quite remarkable, really, to look at some of this stuff and think, how can there be such a huge disparity between the content of your, your original series production and also your original movie productions quite baffling because honestly of that stuff I think on that top 10 list there was only really the Irishman sticks out to me as being anything which was um, really sort of laudable and worthwhile everything else I think of the stuff that I saw I would think to myself wow Um, and of the stuff that I haven't seen specifically but know of by reputation and from people such as yourselves whose opinions I trust I wouldn't have any of it down in the top 10 whatsoever so one, one can only assume that Netflix are um, when we hear about them investing in billions uh, for original content. I'm going to suggest that a certain percentage of uh, percentage of that has been set aside for subliminal advertising. Or <laughs> uh, what is in the list? Then um, do you have it at hand? I don't have it at hand. No. Um, All you need to know is that it's Bird Box Extraction, The Irishman, <laughs> uh, Six Underground, uh, Now This, and. Uh, uh, was the platform one of them? Did you say Scott? it was? Yes. Um, I can only assume that it is. Sorry, because vamping you will bring it up. I can only assume that they're paying a lot more attention to their episodic content because, well, it lasts longer and brings pe- more people in. So mm. I, I can, I suppose, they've got their heads on straight. The thing is, you're like, oh yeah, I get why. Oh, they want to focus on that. If I'm spending two hundred million dollars on something, it doesn't really matter what it is. Mm-hmm. I would still want some sort of. I still want some level of quality control. Although I keep yeah. I keep going to Triple Frontier as a, as a as an example, but actually I can see what the merits of that exercise were, and there are things about that that I still find interesting now, even though I, I kind of it kind of passed me by. The thing is that Netflix's metrics, however the measure stuff, is clearly not in the way that old ways of doing it, like you know box office returns or anything. Mm. So. I don't quite know yeah. what they go with. Is it simply engagement? Is it something that they can see a spike in well, subscriptions because of something being released or yeah, something? But sorry. their metrics are very different from So I found, found a list here, and what they're saying is the audience in the first four weeks of the film's debut. Yes, that um, sounds familiar. Right. So at the bottom of it, you've got the perfect date at 55 million. The platform at 56, we need to see. Uh, the wrong Missy at 59, which was... Oh, God. The what? I watched the um, half the bag episode about the wrong missing. It looks like it may be the worst film ever made. Yeah, the wrong what? It's an Adam Sandler production. He's not in it, but it does star David Spade. So, yeah, the wrong Missy. Yeah, um, the character's called Missy. I haven't even heard of it. You don't want to. It looks Mm -hmm. honestly. It looks like one of the worst things that has ever been committed to film or well, hard drives. I guess, but it just looks so bad. 
Triple Frontiers at 7 with 63 million. Um, slightly disappointingly, The Irishman's got 64 million at number 6. So I was hoping that would be much better. You were um, hoping that would be number 1? Uh, yes, particularly when above it you've got Murder Mystery at 83 million, uh, Six Underground also at 83 million, Spencer Confidential at 85. Oh, yeah. Bird Box at 89 and <laughs> Extraction at 99 million. What was Spencer Confidential? A Mark Wahlberg action comedy thing, isn't it? Ah. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know that one no, I've not watched it I've certainly heard enough about it there was one there somewhere around the middle Scott that you mentioned that I wasn't even familiar with either Murder Mystery or something that's um, Jennifer Aniston Adam Sandler oh Christ mm. almighty yes. talk about that's a meeting like, of two minds it, it's not as awful as many of the other films on that list I assure you really okay yeah so anyway Netflix get your act together yeah <laughs> that's what we're saying what is it with movies Netflix what's the deal with that um, oh, do you know what surprises me is that Roma's not on there. It um, it disappoints me. I don't know if sure it necessarily surprises me. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. surprise me. Um, like, if it was to do with like merit, you'd have Roma, then the Irishman right at the top of the list. It's nothing to do with quality. Yeah. 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 Let's round mm. things off today by taking a beautiful day in the neighbourhood. Yes. There are many cultural differences between the UK and the USA, though in the interest of keeping politics out of everyone's ears for an hour, I will distill it thus. If you live in the UK, you are statistically unlikely to know who Mr Rogers was. <laughs> True, I knew who he was, and I suspect my cohorts here would say the same, but I couldn't have picked him out in a lineup, and I certainly never saw a frame of his beloved TV show, Mr Rogers' Neighbourhood, which I understand is pretty much as hallowed a cultural institution as you can get in US TV. Anywho, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood concerns itself with a well-documented friendship betwixt Rogers and Esquire magazine journalist Tom Junod. Though there, uh, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that properly. Though here Junod becomes Lloyd Vogel, Matthew Rees, for reasons I can't be bothered researching. When Vogel has assigned Rogers as a subject for a collaborative piece around the theme of heroes, he initially takes it as an insult, butting heads with his editor and reluctantly flying out to meet Rogers on the set of his show. Initially, impression seems suitably vague for a piece only required to fill 300 words, though something remarkable begins to happen when Rogers turns his insight upon Vogel and begins to help him process his relationship with absent father Jerry, the ever-excellent Chris Cooper. Vogel is reluctant at first, but as the two become friends, he finds Rogers' unique observations on emotional development and often bizarre zen-like asides to the importance of appreciating others, increasingly empowering in repairing his broken paternal relationship. Structured in a way that primarily focuses on Vogel, Neighbourhood somehow manages to capture a portrait of Rogers using only the periphery afforded his character, capturing him as somewhere between the mythical presence of a Dalai Lama and a kindly uncle who lives just down the street, which, to tens of millions of now adult Americans, is exactly what Fred Rogers was. It's a remarkable effort from director Mario Heller, who we last spoke about in the context of Can You Ever Forgive Me, another low-key film which I also liked a lot, and who I'm now committed to following with interest. Of course, Hanks is predictably excellent in his role, and were I to pick either of his two movies, which we have discussed here in this episode... I would, well, this one he has a role, Greg. Yes, I would certainly rather recommend this one uh, as being the more valuable performance by a number of metrics. Matthew Reese, who I don't recognise from anything else, is perfectly acceptable as Lloyd, though it must be frustrating to find yourself as a central character in a movie, gathering a war chatter to be sidelined by pretty much everyone else involved. It is, however, Heller's show, and a very good show at that. Again, I do recommend i think the only thing i've seen matthew recent is trailers for that update of perry mason which looks appalling because oh like perry mason's an action hero basically it seems to be oh like, cool no not cool craig <laughs> why does everything have to be made gritty <laughs> uh, uh, no yeah i quite enjoyed this mm. what i feel like it is is it's quite a good companion piece to the documentary won't you be my neighbor which i watched first and mm-hmm. i've seen it twice now and what I'm aware of, both in that documentary and this, though, is that Mr. Rogers has no meaning for me at all. Mm-hmm. But the documentary in particular does a really good job of pointing out just like what he means to people. And the I think like the real um, so Tom Junod, mm-hmm. his article, like, and there have been other research articles and a couple I've read about Mr. Rogers. And the whole thing was basically everybody's assuming he's he was going to be in the American Jimmy Savile. Yeah. You know, he, nobody could have been that nice. But like every single thing I've read, every investigative journalist piece, every profile, it's like, you know what? No, he was actually that nice. The real deal. Yeah, which seems, he was, he was, it's almost sad that that seems remarkable now. 
yeah, that, that everybody's so cynical, including myself, you know, that, that you can't, especially this, this man who is so interested in children and stuff and like, there's got, he's got to be, have like horrible skeletons in the closet or something. But it's like, no, he seemed like a, a nice guy who maybe had differences in politics or something, but I really appreciate how much he seemed to genuinely care. Mm-hmm. The documentary in particular, because it's, it's shown the real Mr. Rogers, um, shows that. This works as a nice companion piece. So the, uh, it's weird that in um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, Tom Hanks, he's, and, and there, basically, had it been in the past, it would have been James Stewart. Mm-hmm. Now, there was nobody else that could play that role. It had to be Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, and he's he's fantastic in it. But it, it's so strange that um, he's the star, despite the fact that he's actually a peripheral character mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's entertaining. He's a nice guy. I think it just doesn't do as much for me as it might do for an American, because yeah, he's, I didn't hear of him until I was an adult, and only for, in the last few years really got I wear the name for a few years, like, yep. but yeah, so you, there's no, there's no nostalgia there. There's no connection at all. It's like just like an interesting thing because he's a nice guy. I think if you're an American though, who grew up watching him, mm-hmm. then I think it'd be quite an affecting film. I think so. I think uh, yeah. Say we. I mean, we as Europeans, we imbibe enough American culture to know by proxy. Like we we've heard Americans referring to Mister Rogers enough to sort of understand who he is. But I'd be very surprised if any number uh, of us have actually have actually watched the program or fully understand until now, having watched this, actually what he represents to an entire generation or possibly sort of two generations of American adults now. And it is there's a real um, bizarrely enough the the most distilled experience um, of this film for me was I don't know if it's just the mood I was in, but. Again, my wife and I were trying to decide what to watch, and we'd said, "Oh, right, okay, let's let's uh, double down on Hanks and give him an, <laughs> give him another give him another another swing." After being disappointed by Greyhound, uh, and my wife had said to me, "Oh, right, show me the trailer for this then, till I see what it is." And watching the trailer for it, I got weirdly emotional just even watching the trailer for this, and I thought, "Oh, great, here we go." I'm going to feel like I've been hit by a sledgehammer by the end of this film, and that's that's not the case. There are moments where uh, it does manage to feel quite profound. There's one moment in particular which I think was a huge gamble on Heller's part, where uh, Rogers and Vogel are in a restaurant, and Rogers asks him to take the opportunity to think about some of the people who are meaningful to him. Um, and during that 60 seconds of silence, as the camera moves in, we suddenly realise that actually we're breaking the fourth wall and Tom Hanks <laughs> is staring into the camera at us. And in a lot of other circumstances, that could have gone down really badly. And actually, it managed to feel bizarrely profound in the middle of this film. Um, and I think Hanks's performance is, in a sense, quite underrated, under, sorry, understated because I get the impression that Fred Rogers is quite an understated character himself, that there was an awful lot of depth to someone who appeared quite remarkably placid on the surface. And for that reason, I think this has immediately become one of my favourite Tom Hanks performances, because I think I get the impression, and again, we really don't know Fred Rogers the way that that generation of Americans do, I get the sense that he's really fundamentally managed to capture something here, Um that a lot of other actors might have struggled to do. And again, I'm not the biggest Tom Hanks fan in the world, but I really, really enjoyed this, um, and largely in part due to his performance. So Yeah, so, yeah it's, I feel like it's like, there are basically only two people I could ever imagine doing this. It's James Stewart or Tom Hanks. Mm. It's like, and James Stewart's probably closer physically to Fred Rogers, mm-hmm. um, but for all that matters, which is not a great deal. But there's, like, there's that... I mean, and Tom Hanks is regular, like, regardless, like, the modern James Stewart. And you can see why, um, even though um, they're, in the real life, their politics are quite on the opposite side of each other. But he does seem to... I would actually, if you enjoyed this, Craig, I would recommend you check out Won't You Be My Neighbour. I will do. I've already committed to that, actually, on the basis of some further reading. Again, I mean, it's not going to have the same effect on you as it will on other people. For the same reason, it won't then have the same effect on me. It's like, he's nothing to me. So I don't have like the emotional attachment, but it's interesting because he's an interesting man, and you know the fact that he he was absolutely genuine. Mm-hmm. 
as cynical as that seems, um, that that's kind of remarkable. Yeah. I think a lot of the emotional impact comes down to the fact that given the times we're living in and all the reasons that we have to be cynical about stuff, Drew, the actual fact that this human being existed and was so transparently, apparently, just a fundamentally amazing guy goes off like an emotional hand grenade um, it's more it's more of a sad indictment of the times we live in that we have any cause to to um, put that under the microscope whatsoever it's so difficult just to accept that on face but it seems to be the case yeah so if you watch when you be my neighbor uh, you'll see that um, just like good Tom Hanks performances mm. there's always the danger that you're doing impersonation mm. Which I suppose to the degree he is, because if you if you start seeing that, you see that the sort of the very quiet and measured way that Fred Rogers always talked, it, it's very distinctive, and like his like calmness and his sort of slow movements and stuff that Tom Hanks is it's basically copied, but there's still. You still need to do a good performance to like breathe life into that and to not just be like robotically copying someone. So Hanks has done a really good job there. Mm-hmm. No, I don't have any further point. It's like uh, just like if you're like me, you're not familiar with it. I suggest you check out the documentary as well. Mm. Just then you, you maybe have more appreciation for Hanks' performance because it just seems to to really get the essence of the guy, at least as portrayed in that documentary. Yeah. That's all I've ever seen him in. Yeah, and again, the film is ostensibly you know not about Fred Rogers, so <laughs> yeah, it's, he, it's doubly remarkable. He's effectively um, a supporting character, I guess, mm-hmm. and but it's just. You don't really, you're not aware of anybody else in the film for the most part. Indeed. You've not seen this, Scott, no? I have not, no, despite the multiple recommendations to do either this or the documentary. But uh, yes, I must get around to it. It does sound like it would be a worthwhile watch. And certainly Mr. Rogers seems to be what, to the generation of Americans, what um, Glenn Michaels would be to us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No talking robot though, or talking lamps. I was going to say, who, who is Fred Rogers Paladin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would start with the documentary though, Scott. Yes. So we around that, and I think that's probably because it gives you the important background. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, that will wrap us up for this evening. I think if we're done with this, gents. Sounds about right. Indeed so. So thanks very much for your attention. If there's anything you would like to get in touch with us for this or any other reason brought up over the course of this episode, then please do uh, on Twitter at, uh, at Fuds on Film, Facebook at facebook.com slash Fuds on Film, or podcast at Fuds on Film if you feel like it doing us an email. Yeah, until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Bye-bye. Bye. Fairly well. <laughs>